Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature renowned author Mary Beard. Probably the most famous classicist in the world, Mary Beard is best known for her international bestsellers, SPQR, about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and Women in Power, a Manifesto, a study of ancient and modern attitudes towards female speech. She joined us in the fall of 2023 to talk about a book she had just published called Emperor of Rome, which explores the power of the office of the Roman Emperor. Given the huge amount that has already been written about the classical world over hundreds of years, it's hard to imagine that there's anything left to say. And yet, Beard has found a large and eager reading audience precisely because she takes material that is both familiar and remote, often presented with great formality, and humanizes the people, be they emperors or their servants. She breathes life into the ancient world and helps us experience it in all its complexity and contradictions with humor, irony, and love for her subject. Beard was a professor at Cambridge University for more than 40 years, and her talk is that rare treat of getting to hear from someone who has spent a lifetime talking about their work and making it accessible and relevant to thousands of students. Here's Beard. Uh, and thank you uh, to you all for coming. It's great. I've been to Portland before and much enjoyed it, and it's great to be back. What I want to do this evening is I want to give you a taste of my new book. I don't want to summarize the arguments, but I want to give you a feel of it. Now, I don't care how many times any of you actually think about the Roman Empire each week or each day. I'm going to take you all to dinner with the Roman Emperor. So it is quite literally a taste of the book. I'm going to start by asking you to imagine that it's 89 CE and you're an upmarket Roman who has been invited by the ruling emperor Domitian. You're very excited, you've put your best toga on and this is the kind of thing that you're expecting. But when you show up, things take a weird turn. The dining room is all painted black. That's what that slide is trying to show. <laughs> the food is all in black dishes. The couches are black. And next to each one of them, there is a silver tablet with the guest's name inscribed on it but it's shaped like a tombstone. Everything is served by naked slaves who have been painted black. While the emperor himself spends the whole evening talking about, guess what, death. You obviously fear that you're not going to get home alive. But at the end of the evening, Domitian cheerily waves goodbye to everybody and you're off home with a sigh of relief. Then there's a knock at the door. 
And now you really do think your last hour must have come. But when you go outside, you don't find a hit squad. You find a group of palace porters carrying the silver tablets, shaped like a tombstone, and the other decorations, and indeed the slave who has been serving you. They're all a generous present from the emperor. What strikes me most about that story, and it's told whether it's true or not, by the Roman historian Cassius Dio, is the commodification of the slaves. I think there's no bleaker glimpse of the position of the enslaved within Roman society than the idea that they can be just handed over as presents from the emperor to his guests, the ancient equivalent of a kind of party bag. But that wasn't Dio's point. He told the story to show that in the Roman imperial court, you didn't need bloodshed to cause terror, and that dinner was a prime opportunity for the emperor to scare his guests witless. Now, the bottom line is that the imperial banquet was where power was on display and where the emperor and his guests were seen, judged, and potentially humiliated. According to the Roman writer Suetonius, the Emperor Caligula is supposed to have had some posh Roman senators. Well, he made them act as waiters, and he made them tuck up their togas so high that they showed an embarrassingly large amount of leg. Right? The Emperor Tiberius, on the other hand, was ridiculed for penny-pinching meanness. His crime was that he served up leftovers from the day before. That was not treated as you know, very useful kind of um, modesty and money saving. It was damn mean. And things at dinner could go terribly wrong. Elagabalus, an emperor in the third century CE, was so overgenerous in showering his dinner guests with rose petals that he actually, perhaps inadvertently, smothered them to death. <laughs> Sometimes, though, it was more a question of first-degree homicide. It was at dinner that the Emperor Claudius was finished off by poisoned mushrooms fed to him by his wife Agrippina. And it was at dinner that her son, the Emperor Nero, soon after, finished off one of his rivals, Britannicus. So I think you have to say that the imperial dinner party is the classic crime scene in ancient Rome. Now, in English detective fiction, it's the country house that's the classic crime scene. In Rome, it's the emperor's dinner. Now, at this point, I want to reassure you. I have just rattled through 
a load of Roman emperors' names. And, and I've given cameo appearances to some who still ring bells quite widely, like Claudius, largely thanks to I, Claudius. But to others, like Elagabalus, they're people who don't ring any bells at all to most of us, uh, and not even to students studying classics. Now, can I say at this point, do not worry, right? It is very easy to get the impression that if you really want to understand Roman history, you have to know who all these rulers were, and you have to know the precise details of their biographies. The really good news is that you don't need to know that at all. Those details don't offer the key. And in fact, I think most inhabitants of the Roman Empire couldn't have told you about the career of Elagabalus any more than I could tell you about, well, the career of Edward III of England, you know? I wouldn't even know what century he lived in. Now, I'm not saying by that that the emperors were all identicals. They, had, they were different, they were different individuals, and I'm sure some were better than others. But for hundreds of years, they were much more similar to each other than they were different. They did the same kind of job from the same place with the same range of staff. And you probably understand more about Roman history if you take them all together, which is what I try to do in the book. What I'm saying is it's not a disadvantage if you can't tell Marcus Aurelius from Antoninus Pius, I think it might even be an advantage not to get hung up on what each individual one of these guys did. So what I do in the new book is I look at the emperor from Julius Caesar, the first sort of proto-emperor who, whose career marked the end of a sort of democracy of the Roman Republic, and who was assassinated in 44 BCE, through about 30 of these rulers, of which these are just a small choice selection, down to the middle of the third century CE. And I track them thematically, not biographically, across a whole range of their activities. Where did they live? Who did they sleep with? How did they travel? What did they do in their spare time? What was their working routine like? What kind of letters did they write? And so on. But this evening, I'm concentrating on where, what, and how the emperors ate. Who cooked for them? Who served them? And what does it all say about Roman power? And we're starting first with where did they eat? The basic principles of Roman dining are actually quite well known to most of us. And we know them from the movies, if nowhere else. Um, this was, I, mean, I think, my, my vision of the Roman Empire is forever formed by the BBC's 1970s series, I, Claudius, which was also shown here. I can't resist um, including her. 
we get that image from the, from the movies, but we can also see it quite clearly, albeit on a small scale, in the remains at Pompeii, like here. Now, this is a summer outdoor dining room, once covered by a nice shady canopy. It's got three couches in a kind of U-shape, which would each have held three people reclining, um, nine, nine in all. You can see here uh, that it was very richly painted. And also, and this wouldn't be so obvious, you can see that this would have been a pool. Water would have flowed down through there, and the guests would have been able to uh, admire their own reflections in the water. <laughs> now, I, I want you to remember that arrangement because we're going to see it again. Emperors' dining rooms uh, in their different residences actually followed these same basic principles, but on a much grander scale and in sometimes much weirder settings. Now, I should say that we're talking formal dining here. This is kind of tuxedo-style eating. Most Romans, most of the time, uh, would have ate on stools in a bar, plus a bit of drinking and gambling. But if we go back up market, this here on the screen is the now rather sad ruin in the main imperial palace at Rome. Uh, it's a sad ruin of a dining room where the Roman poet Statius had dinner with the same emperor Domitian, but it wasn't a black dinner this time, in the late first century CE, and a dinner which Statius celebrated uh, in a rather over-the-top poem. He claims that in this room, and I'm not quite sure how they'd all fit, um, a thousand tables were laid up with portable couches around each one, and he hypes the occasion for all it's worth. Uh, I feel like I'm reclining with the god Jupiter among the stars, he said. This is the first day of what I was born for. It's hard to reconstruct here from the, the slightly austere ruins, but actually something smaller and more exquisitely luxurious is buried in the foundations underneath this dining room. And it's a dining room built by Nero and destroyed in the great fire of 64 CE in Rome and then uh, built over. Now, it too is quite hard to imagine uh, in its current state, so I am giving you a reconstruction to start with. Um, if you go there now and visit, as you sometimes can, um, they give you a pair of uh, virtual reality spectacles to help you reconstruct it. The point is that the emperor would have reclined here. You've got another pavilion, rather like at Pompeii. Here are the three couches, like at Pompeii. And the emperor would have been central here. And he would have looked across to here, which was 
a bit easier to see up here, which was a rather narrow stage. And on that stage, during dinner, all kinds of performers would have entertained the dinner guests. But the key thing for me is that this is very much a kind of upmarket version of the Pompeii example. You can see that here is a pool into which the diners reclining around here would have been able to gaze at themselves. And if we look now to what actually remains of that stage, which you see here, this is the, the platform would have gone all along there. What you see here, this gap, is actually just like at Pompeii, a water chute. And water would have come down there and it would have flowed into the pool uh, next to Nero and his guests. And I think that there's something quite important here. If there's one thing that we need, and we're only just beginning to see, I think, about very upmarket Roman eating, is that if you possibly could, you always ate to the sight and sound of running water. That's what made a Roman dining room really great, right? But Roman imperial dining rooms can be loads weirder than that. Um, there's always been a mystery about one later dining room said to have been built by Nero, which Roman writers claimed constantly rotated day and night, just like the heavens. And even more mysteriously, Caligula was said to have turned a tree into a dining room. He called it his nest. He also hosted banquets, this is Caligula, on sort of floating hotels um, on Lake Nemi, what is now about an hour's drive outside central Rome. Now, we can't any longer, surprise, surprise, identify the tree, um, but this is one of his pair of vast, as I say, floating hotels, come casinos, come uh, watery pleasure palaces, which were discovered at the bottom of Lake Nemi uh, just before World War II. They were sadly destroyed in World War II. Um, no one quite knows which side is to blame for destroying them, even now. Bizarrely, they haven't entirely been destroyed. Bizarrely, part of a mosaic floor from one of these barges, floating hotels, actually turned up a few years ago in New York City. It had been recycled as a coffee table, right? Now, quite how it got to New York from Naomi, it appears to have been quite innocently acquired by the present owners, is a complete mystery. But it is now back without its coffee table legs in the museum at Naomi, just to show that imperial palaces actually get everywhere, even now. But there are all other kinds of ingenious locations in which the emperor dined. Domitian, again, used the Colosseum to entertain 
thousands and thousands of guests. They must have sat on the seats of the Colosseum rather than reclining. And they didn't watch gladiators, but you know, in some ways even more distastefully to our eyes, they watched during dinner fights between women and dwarfs, pumili. And one description claims that fruit was scattered over the guests from nets that were fixed high above them. Now, it was apparently an extremely impressive stunt, except for the fact that some of the fruit wasn't entirely ripe. So some of the guests got a rather nasty knock, right? Now, I think if we're thinking about the thematics of imperial dining, really upmarket dining, we need to compare that with Elagabalus's rose petals scattered on everybody. And I think one of the things you do in Rome, if you are a generous host, such as the emperor should be, is you scatter stuff on your guests from high up, right? <laughs> Doesn't always have a happy ending, however. But my absolute favorite imperial dining room is another variant on the water theme. It's at one of the imperial families villas, country villas, in south of Rome, uh, on the seaside. It's at a place called Spurlonga, and it was rediscovered in the 1950s, and you can still visit it. I think one of the things that's amazing about these imperial properties, and particularly the dining rooms, is you can actually still go and see them. You can still go and sit where Nero sat, you know, and that's, for me, quite exciting. The idea was that the guests dined on this artificial island here, right? And they probably got to it by boat, and they probably, and this is what some ancient literary sources tell us, they probably had their food floated across to them on miniature boats. And they faced into this huge natural cave. The cave was originally decorated with huge groups of sculpture depicting scenes from the poetry of Homer, the composer of the Iliad and the Odyssey. But my second question is, OK, that's where they ate. But what did they eat, uh, at least at big dinner parties? I mean, I'm sure that even Roman emperors, you know, snacked on the job from time to time. But the image that we get in Roman writers is one of, well, it's display cookery, right? There are vast quantities of exotic ingredients usually mixed up in surprising ways. Now, it really is a feature of haute cuisine throughout history that it combines ingredients that are hard to source and ruinously expensive and mixes them up so it's often impossible to recognize what they actually are, right? Now, Romans are no exception to that basic rule of haute cuisine. 
uh, the signature dish of the Emperor Vitellius, for example, supposedly contained pike livers, pheasant and peacock brains, plus flamingo tongues and lamprey innards all mushed up so you'd never know what it was you were eating. <laughs> I have come to wonder, though, in quite what form any of this was served at table. Just go back and imagine the dining arrangements at Spelonga. If you're one of the guests, you're going to be reclining, you're going to be supporting yourself on one arm, so you've only got one hand free to eat with, and you don't have a fork, because forks haven't really been invented yet. And anyway, all the food is being floated across to you on little boats. Now, it seems to me that there may well have been these great display dishes, really imperial style, processed around on vast platters, making a huge impression. But if so, I don't see any alternative than that they must have been cut up into tiny bite-sized pieces before they reached any of the guests. So I think the view I've come to of the Roman imperial banquet, never mind what the ingredients of the food is, etc., I've come to the view that it must have been a kind of tapas finger food occasion, not hearty meat and two vegetables, right? So think about it as being much daintier at the point of consumption than we often imagine. And it certainly required a large number of staff, both front of house and in the kitchen. The vast majority of them would have been slaves or freed slaves. But there are loads of others. There are cooks, there are table napkin superintendents, there are men and women in charge of the glasses, plus all the dinnertime entertainers. Remember that little stage in Nero's dining room. And we find references to comics, to stand-ups, to one man who actually was a slave whose epitaph claims that he was a comic impersonator. And the first entertainer, this is how he was paraded on his tomb, the first entertainer in the imperial household to discover how to imitate barristers. God knows what the act was like. Another group of these were called coprii, which I'm afraid literally means little And the coprii apparently rushed around between the, the, the couches on which the guests were reclining, playing pranks on them and practical jokes. This guy here is one of the most important characters at an imperial dinner party. His name is Tiberius Claudius Zosimus, and he's an, a freed slave of the emperor, Aug Lib, a freed man of the emperor. But his job is very interesting because he is a pri gustator, and that means a taster. 
He's a food taster at the imperial banquets, uh, and he is, I think, we can be certain, not tasting for quality. <laughs> He's tasting for poison. Uh, we don't know how, I'm afraid we do not have any clue how Zosimus died. Um, let's hope it wasn't on the job, right? Uh, his family, who put this tomb up, have been very clear to make, to make it obvious to us, though, that he wasn't just an ordinary praegostator, he was the procurator, he was the manager, he was the head taster, the manager of the tasters. And this one is an epitaph to a palace cook, who is also a former slave. But again, the family has been very clear that he wasn't any old cook. Uh, and at the top, you can see they put his title here, Archimagiros. He's an Archimagiros. He put it in bold, large down there. Now, Archimagiros is a hugely pretentious Greek word here written in Latin, which sort of means, I suppose we would put it in French, he's a kind of chef de cuisine. He's not a cook. He is, he is a celebrity chef de cuisine, right? And uh, no doubt he's in charge of some of these very weird concoctions that later got cut up into bite-sized pieces. What I'm wanting to say is that actually we can begin to populate the kitchens a bit. We can see who the people were. We can see the kind of jobs they did. It's not so easy to see where the emperor's kitchen staff actually worked. Bizarrely, there isn't a single imperial palace or imperial country estate like Spelonga where we can identify any large kitchens at all. So where the cooking happened is a puzzle. You know, and one desperately thinks that maybe it was home delivery in some way. Because <laughs> I don't know if anybody here has been to, to um, the top Karpa Palace in Istanbul, but there you have vast kitchens. Um, there's nothing of that sort in Rome, in the Roman imperial properties at all. What we do get, however, is just one glimpse into not actually an emperor's kitchen, but into a would-be emperor's kitchen. It's in the palace of the famous pair Antony and Cleopatra in Alexandria, when Antony was vying to become sole ruler of the Roman world. And one Roman historian remembers how his own grandfather had a friend who had actually visited the kitchens in, Anton in Antony and Cleopatra's palace. And when he went there, what he saw, so he said, is eight wild boar all roasting on a spit. So Antony and Cleopatra's palace did have a very big kitchen. And the friend of the grandfather is supposed to have said, gosh, you know, you must be expecting a large crowd for dinner, you know, eight wild boar, right? Uh, one of the cooks replied to him, no, no, we're only expecting 12, he said, but we don't know exactly when they're going to want to start eating. 
So we put the boars on to roast at intervals so that one of them will be sure to be done at the right time. Right? Now, you may not know on this side of the Atlantic the story of the then Prince Charles, uh, and it's a story firmly denied by Buckingham Palace, which claimed that Prince Charles had seven boiled eggs cooked for him each morning so that one would be sure to be done just how he liked it. <laughs> An extraordinary similarity between these <laughs> stories uh, 2,000 years apart. And I think here we find ourselves really on the cusp between the practicalities of royal dining and also, though, the myths of royal luxury, whether then or now. You know, what would it be like to be Prince Charles well, you'd have seven boiled eggs cooked so that you could always know that one would be just right. Yeah. But I, I want to spend my last 10 minutes or so thinking about the ideology of imperial power that was on display at these dinners and the culture of suspicion that I highlighted a bit at the beginning. Now, I don't want to be too macabre about this. I think most rich Romans would have been delighted to go to dinner at the royal palace. But communal eating is always also about power. Who sits where? What kind of food and drink do they get? And how does that differ one from the other? Now, I think we all have experience of that. But certainly on my, what is called, high table at my Cambridge college, I sit slightly above the students who are eating in the dining room on a lower set of tables, and I get better food and better wine than they do. <laughs> but I also know it from the other way round, and I think many of us probably do, uh, when we get an invitation that we're very pleased to have, but when we get there, we discover that we're sitting right at the bottom of the table in about the least prestigious position. We really are made to know our place. Now, I think it was absolutely like that in Rome too. I mean, and Romans took that hierarchy to even greater extremes. I mean, um, some emperors were even said to serve fake food to the lowest ranking guests. Uh, you, know, you, you know, everybody else would be having a nice juicy pear and you'd have a wooden one, right? <laughs> and you would have to sit and watch your betters tucking in, right? But the display element uh, of the Roman imperial dinner, I think, was even more extreme than that. Dinner was one of the places where the emperor was judged. And that went beyond what was served on the menu, all the sort of microaggressions of reducing senators to waiters. And one emperor in the third century, I think, got it absolutely right when he said he felt that when he was at dinner, it was as if he was on stage. And many anecdotes about what happened at dinner, not necessarily the most bloody ones, sometimes they are, point to big debates about the emperor's behavior. One question was, 
How did the emperor punish misdemeanors at table? Now, Caligula is said to have chopped off the hands of a slave who pinched a strip of silver from a couch and then strung them round his neck. Right? Claudius, by contrast, responded sensibly to one of his guests who had, you know, in what is still a modern restaurant trick, who had nicked a golden cup from the table as a souvenir. The next time the guy came to dinner, he found that he was the only one to be served of plain pottery. Right. Now, sure, there is a status issue here. The enslaved are punished differently from the free. But I think more than that, Caligula's response showed his sadism. That was told as to reveal his monstrosity. Claudius's was straight out of the playbook of a good emperor. He was a decent guy who wasn't taken for a ride, but he reacted to the peccadillo with moderation and wit. But other dining stories have a different message. And they sum up, I think, the dystopian world of a palace where nothing was ever quite as it seems. The anecdote of Elagabalus and the rose petals is not only, though it is partly, the story of a capricious teenager on the throne, because that's what he was. It also points to the chilling idea that when the emperor is being most generous, he is also his most dangerous. He really does kill with kindness. You have to be careful when the emperor looks as if he's being nice to you. And there are many stories that illustrate that point. I can't resist telling you, though, um, now that uh, Elagabalus is also reputed to be the inventor of the whoopee cushion. Uh, because he's supposed to have sat some of his guests on inflatable cushions, which he had slaves deflate during the evening, so the guests ended up on the floor. A another, and now I think really disquieting anecdote, I warn you, is told of the Emperor Commodus, who pushed one convention of the banquet to truly awful extremes. As in many historical courts, and as we glimpsed in the Colosseum, Roman imperial banquets often featured what they called dwarfs, who, like the little shits, the coprii, acted up and played jokes. It was partly entertainment, but it also served to define the host and the guest the elite who reclined to eat as perfect in bodily form against a display of the different and those, like the dwarfs, deemed visibly inferior. Commodus is said to have gone a step further and to have put a pair of these little people on show on a silver platter smeared with mustard, as if they were not just entertainers, but were almost literally 
ready to be consumed. Now, the anecdote is told to prove Commodus's monstrosity, but it's also a very vivid reminder, I think, of the complicated symbolism of what was on display at a banquet, of what you might or might not eat. You've got fake food, you've got real people. Everything is up in the air and slightly disturbing. But the banquet, uh, as I said, was occasionally, literally, a place of death. And even when murder was not actually on the menu, the emperor's dinner party was a magnifying lens onto the culture of suspicion that ruled in the imperial court, where, like in most courts of most autocrats, everyone was always looking at how everyone else behaved, who was in, who was out, who was sitting next to the emperor, who was at the bottom of the table, and so forth. The palace was a backstabbing place, but it was never more backstabbing than at dinner. Now, you see that suspicion in the constant presence of these food tasters checking for poison. They're both a sensible precaution but also simultaneously a reminder to everybody at dinner that there might just be danger in what they were eating. And it reminds me, I think, of my feelings about um, seeing life belts on a boat. You know, you think, I'm very glad they're there, but it also is a terrible warning the whole thing might sink, right? That's, you know, that's with these poison tasters. You know, it's a useful precaution but it's also a reminder that there might be poison in your chips, right? Um, there's a wonderful story of the Emperor Tiberius and one of his more dissident female relatives. Um, he'd invited her to dinner to kind of show that, you know, everything was fine between them. Um, and when she comes to dinner, the Emperor hands her a bowl of fruit and says, oh, you know, to take a nice apple. And she reached out to the bowl of fruit to pick out an apple. And then for a kind of nanosecond, she hesitated as the possibility that it had been doctored flashed through her mind. And then she knows she can do nothing else. So she hesitates, then eats it. Tiberius noticed that she hesitated. And from that, inferred her suspicion of him. The next week, she was in exile. And soon after, she was dead. But to absolutely finish now, I was particularly struck when I was writing the book by how often the emperors, or maybe their designers, actually built that slightly nightmare vision of a banquet into the very decoration of their dining rooms. And I'm taking us back now to Spurlonga to ask what exactly was the sculpture in the cave. Well, the focal group was this. It's a huge depiction in marble of a scene from Homer's Odyssey, which many of you, I think, will know. Odysseus and his crew fleeing from the destruction of Troy, fetch up 
on the island of the one-eyed giant Polyphemus, and they are entertained by him in the cave that was his home. Problem was that Polyphemus was a cannibal, and the menu turned out to include a couple of Odysseus's crew. In order to escape, Odysseus got the giant drunk and told his men to drive a hot stake into the giant's single eye and blind him. It is, in other words, the mythical dinner party from hell, in which the host eats the guests and the guests blind and maim the host. What a brilliant accompaniment to the violence and the suspicion of an imperial dinner. Okay, you might say, but isn't it here a joke on the cave, putting a cave story, because this all happens in a cave, into a real cave that the diners are looking at? And in part, I'm sure that is the case, but I think it's more than that. Let me tell you that there are no fewer than four surviving imperial dining rooms in Italy that feature, as we know, as their sculptural decoration, the scene of Odysseus versus Polyphemus, and the others are not in caves. For me, this is pretty clear proof that Roman imperial designers and patrons saw very clearly the ambivalence of these banquets. To push that a bit further, they knew that dining with the emperor really was a bit like dining with Polyphemus. And that's a nasty thought. Thank you very much. Is that because we're a food town? <laughs> I'm trying to imagine eating, lying down on one elbow, with food on boats. Was it just a big mess, do you think, in reality? I, I, think, it's, I think we'd all manage fine if it's finger food. But if you think of you know, roast, venice, roast wild boar with all the trimmings, yeah. how are you going to cut it up and eat it? Like a chicken leg. <laughs> it might have chicken wings. Yeah, I think chicken right. wings are possible. But I, I, it is, it's at the point of consumption, it must be dainty food. Yeah. I think I'd be in a, sitting in my food by the end of it. I, I can't imagine. I think um, it was terribly, terribly messy. Yeah. You know, I do think they, they must have dribbled. You know, look, look at all these table napkin attendants that we read about. <laughs> you know, that is because... Somebody, and no doubt, right. it was. We know that the, the, you know, I'm afraid the slaves were going around wiping their them, chins. wiping the chins. Oh my God! The other thing I should have said about these: this is a dining in a slave society, because I tried getting up on one of these. Now maybe they had little wooden steps that no, but I. But you need help. Yeah. You know, you you are you need help to dine and to eat. And in a sense, you know, that's the ambivalence of the Roman elite, that 
it is much, much more sexy to need all the accoutrements and the service and the men and women helping you. But it also, of course, puts you at, you know, it makes you dependent on them. At their mercy. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you have a favorite or do you have many favorites or most successful depictions of Roman life in pop culture? Oh, it has to be the BBC's I, Claudius. I've already yep. given that away. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. sorry. Okay, well, how about second to that? This is, <laughs> this is, you know, this very old person's thing. I mean, you know, those of us remember when it first came out. It was amazing, you know. And all those marvellous lines like, um, is there anyone in Rome who has not slept with my daughter? You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, if I had a second, I would say it was Gladiator. Huh. Because actually the depictions of uh, gladiatorial combat and the, the kind of the lurid excesses of it was pretty good. Pretty mm. good. Mm. I cried when I first saw it as well. Wow. I didn't cry the second time I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> This one is, uh, were there any trends in eating from early to late Roman Empire? Were there any trends Rome. in eating? Um, the Romans would like you to have thought that there were, and they had a view that, as they did in most things, that they started off plain, simple, and tough, and then they were corrupted by luxury, and they started you know, uh, eating mushed up flamingos' tongues. Now, in part, I think that's probably true because um, the ability to acquire flamingo's tongues uh, implies a large empire, right? You don't, you don't find flamingos living happily around Rome. Uh, so you're getting them from abroad. Um, but one's always very suspicious, as now, with that kind of nostalgia of, you know, men were men and boys were boys, and we, we lived simple back in the 5th century BC, you know, and now we've all gone to pot. Literally. <laughs> um, what do you think is the biggest misconception about your job? About my job? Yeah, as a writer and as a classicist. Oh, I think it's that um, we sit there wanting to be Romans, really. You know, that we sit there and uh, why we study the ancient world is because somehow we really love it, you know. And people often say to me, oh, you must love the Romans. And I think, I really dislike them, actually. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I, but you I, spend so much time I, with them. I find, I find them hugely interesting. You know, absolutely, unfailingly interesting. But there is, you know, and I feel very pleased that I've spent my life, you know, being lucky enough to work on something and on a culture that I find so interesting. It doesn't mean that I like them. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, if I go to bed at night, you know, thinking anything, it's, you know, it's not kind of, um, oh, that was another day in which I thought about the Romans 50 times. I think, thank God I'm not a Roman. <laughs> <laughs> what a great quote from you. <laughs> um, can you talk about in your work this idea that there is the, the, there is the emperor, 
There's the propaganda that surrounds the emperor, which is very important to their power. There's the mythology that then follows the propaganda. And there's sort of layers of yeah. stories about these guys. And somehow you've got to sort of, as an archeologist, dig down and try to find out who were these people. How do you begin to sort all of that out given the kinds of evidence that's available to you? I, I think it's just a really, because these yeah. Roman empires in your, in your book, they talk about them almost becoming like avatars, yeah. right? The, the population's projecting onto them whatever yeah. they need from that emperor. I, I think that I've given up trying, not because I felt it, I was just, I'd failed at it, that that might partly be it. I've given up trying to clear everything away and you know, clear the dross away and all the, uh, the propaganda and to kind of find the real emperor, the real, you know, the real emperor's wife, the real, the real slave, whatever, underneath. Um, I think occasionally you get glimpses, mm. um, but I think that what is, what's most exciting about Roman imperial, the, the whole Roman imperial project around the one-man ruler is that intersection between people's fantasies about him, about what he really did. And it's, in some ways, I don't think it's like our own, but it's, there are similarities about, certainly in the UK, as my little anecdote about Prince Charles showed, there are extraordinary similarities between how we project our own kind of questions like, you know, what would I do if I was king, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and somehow you have to find a way, I think, not of saying, I'm going to get to the truth here, but trying to find a way of talking interestingly about that, those layers and how those layers intersect. And you, you, you see the similarities with, with the modern world all the time. I mean, another of Elagabalus's little habits was that he was said um, never to have worn the same pair of shoes twice. Yeah. And you know, that's Imelda Marcos, right? It is, you know, now we never actually found the 3,000 pairs of shoes that she was supposed to own, right. but you, know, you can see that uh, footwear, what the monarch or the dictator or the dictator's wife wears on their feet becomes hugely resonant very often. And what they do with their feet. I mean, Caligula got into trouble because he wanted people to kiss his feet. Um, and he used to hold his foot, foot out like that. And then his advisors said to people, you know, he doesn't want you to kiss it, he just wants you to admire the shoes. <laughs> it's very dark. <laughs> That's all I say about that. You know, diamonds on the soles of your shoes. It's, you know, shoes are hugely resonant pieces of um, clothing. Wow. I know, uh, this is question is, um, I know we are not supposed to be differentiating between these fellows, which I assume we mean talking about these emperors, but which one is your personal favorite? Well, I, I'm not going to accept the dinner invitation from any of them, thank you very much. Um, uh, the one that I have found most, well, in some ways most clear and fruitful to think about, 
mm. which is why I start the book with him, is Elagabalus. Because the stories are so extreme that it's very easy to, to say, look, I'm not going to bother whether they're true or not. You know, that, you know with some stories you get, you know, you get drawn into thinking, could that be true? You know? But with Elagabalus, you don't get drawn into thinking that. You, know, you just think, this is all, this is all uh, extraordinary fiction. And that frees you up to say, so what's the fiction about? You know, and that's where the anecdote about killing with kindness, I think, is important. Other anecdotes that are told about him, you know, suggest that what you've got there is a, a, a fear that the autocrat totally subverts nature. So Elagabalus is supposed to have worked all night and slept all day. Well, you know, that's a silly thing that you know, teenagers on the throne might do. <laughs> um, we know teenage, many teenagers now who might like to um, work all night and sleep all, well not work, but sleep all day. <laughs> um, but then you see, look, what, so what is, what is this emperor doing? He's not obeying the natural rules. Emperors kind of flout the natural rules. Now the gabblers are doing it everywhere. He will never eat fish by the sea. He will only eat fish inland. How stupid is that? <laughs> Without refrigeration. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. What is your favorite part of translation? If I'm on getting the point of the, the question, it's kind of when I am confronted with a Latin text, how, or Greek text, because the, the source material for um, for these characters is written in both Greek and Latin. It's when I see, when the penny drops about them being clever, right? You know, so there's, you go from um, being able to kind of make sense of what the person is saying. And the next stage, which is the rewarding stage, is you see, blimey, that that person is using the Latin or the Greek language really to make a point. And the pleasure is seeing that point. I'll give you one example. I'll try to make it as little technical uh, as I can. Um, there's a, a, the beginning of the account of the Roman historian Tacitus of the beginning of the reign of Nero. Um, uh, he has Nero making a speech. Uh, a kind of good emperor kind of speech, saying that he's going to keep his family and the state, they're going to be separate. They're going to be discretum. He's not going to let family politics run over interstate affairs. And it's absolutely straight um, kind of playbook of what a good emperor should say. And uh, Tastus goes on to say, and people believed that. You know, there was, there was trust in him. Very next paragraph, um, we have uh, Nero's mum, Agrippina, the one who was telling him off for killing Botanicus, um, wanting to sit in uh, on sessions of the Senate in a way that no woman should ever do, really mixing family and state. And 
Tustus says what they did in order to conceal this was that they put a curtain up between her and the Senate. So she shouldn't be seen. But the word he uses for kind of putting Agrippina off to one side is disgrater, just the same word that Nero had supposedly used for keeping them separate. Right? And what Tacitus is showing us, and it's is repeatedly brilliant, is he's using the language to say, that was a lie all along, wasn't it? Mm. Agrippina was listening to the Senate. Mm. And he's pointing to he's pointing to that similarity by using the same word. Now, it's kind of moments like that when you see, blimey, he's making a point. Right. That's yeah. what's funny. Yeah, yeah. And so hard to translate. Yeah, you, you, nobody can translate that. Right. You have to read it in the original yes. to understand the yes. original. Huh. Well, th that leads to a question... Um, leads to a question. Please comment on the rise of women-owned businesses, women in academia, and celebrities such as Taylor Swift as it relates to women in power. <laughs> I think that's, a, that's the title. Is, is that women in academia and celebrities, did you say? Uh, well, it's all of them, really. I, uh, women own businesses, women in academia, and celebrities such as Taylor Swift as it relates to women in power, which is, you know... Oh, right. A book I wrote. It is, apparently. Um, yeah, yeah. We have some backstage. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I can do that. I mean, and, and uh, treating it seriously, I think, um, look, I, I couldn't have been in the job that I was, that I have done for most, for most of my life. You know, if I'd been born 50 years earlier, that wouldn't have been possible. And um, uh, I've, women have, I, I can't talk about, um, you know, I'm not an expert in Taylor Swift or in women in business and women in um, uh, celebrity women, but I, I'm quite an expert on women in academia. And I, I'm hugely pleased at the advances that there have been. Whether women in academia still have, yet have power, in anything like the way that men in academia have power, I really don't know. They certainly don't get the same pay in, in the United Kingdom as men do. And I think they're still, you know, they're still marginalized. You know, I, I've been very lucky. I've been pushy. and I've had to be very resilient. And I've had to do, you know, honestly, I've, leaving aside whether I'm on telly or not, but I mean, just in my job, I think I've always had a feeling that I've had to work twice as hard as a bloke to get the same recognition. Now, maybe that's me just moaning, but I don't, I don't think it is. Um, and I think... <laughs> it's, you know, it's still tough. And, you know, the, the question that I quite often when I'm talking about women in power ask audiences is to say, right, okay, close your eyes and imagine a professor. And 90% of people imagine uh, a, a kind of old bloke in a white lab coat. And I do that. You know, when I close my eyes and I say, imagine a professor, 
uh, I imagine an old bloke looking a bit like Einstein in a white lab coat. And I think, this is crazy. I am a professor. <laughs> and I close my eyes, and my fantasy world is, it, it is still male. It's a male world, you know? You know, and it has got better. But it, we've got a hell of a long way to go. Well, while we're on the subject of your career, it seems to me that, as, as, as I said at the beginning, the most badass classicist alive, you've done something that in your generation is maybe singular in your career, which is to take this work, which, you know, when I was taught it, and I learned Tacitus, I grew up in an English-style, you know, school, it was really presented to us like it was cod liver oil, it was good for you, yes. right? So you'd better take it. And this will make you know, and it, but that, it'll make you better. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it, it, and you've done something really remarkable in, over the course of your career, and it's maybe not instantaneous. But do you think was this something that you decided to do, which is to take this work? I mean, you're an incredible prose stylist, right? You write beautifully, you write accessibly, and you write it like, you know, maybe we don't want to hang out with them, but we sure want to know, and it feels really relevant and alive. And is that something you decided you were going to do, like as a career choice, like to oh. move from an academic setting to a trade publishing where SPQR was on the bestseller list for I don't know how long here in the United States, for example? Um, I don't think that I started out with a mission. Um, I was, you know, this, one should always distrust stories like I'm going to say, you know, it just happened. No, it didn't, you know, did it? If somebody said, oh, I just got lucky, I would say, think a bit harder about what you did. Um, I was, we had a discussion this morning with the writers group, and I was telling them this, that uh, I was very much helped by some actually largely male colleagues to think about not just speaking to 10 people, not just writing for 10 people. And I told the story this morning about when I was a very young academic in my first job, I took uh, an article that I'd just written, a typescript of an article, to show to one of these senior male colleagues. And I said, please, could you comment on this and be as, be as frank as you like, right? Now, that, that's always a lie, isn't it? <laughs> you know, what? What you really mean is tell me it's wonderful. Um, uh, and he was frank, and we had a very boozy lunch, and at the end he nerved himself to say, look, Mary, I think that this, I think your argument's right, but do you know, it's really boring. <laughs> and that was, you know, just to imagine, you'd, you'd probably get sacked in university now if you told <laughs> a junior colleague that they were boring. That is you know, really hopeless. Um, it was the best piece of, advice or at least the best criticism ever delivered. I thought, I'm never, ever going to be boring again, you know? And I think that really, that, it prompted me to see that you can make the same kinds of arguments. You can argue what you want, but you can actually make people interested in it. And what's the point of doing it just as a kind of private hobby? Um, you know, you, if, uh, it's slightly different now with different funding regimes in, in the UK, 
But you know, I used to think, look, I'm getting paid by the state for this. Um, and I've got, an, you know, I've got an obligation to show people why it's worth paying me, right? Um, now, university funding is such that I'm not paid by the state any longer. Anyway, I've retired. But, um, <laughs> but that is a sort of, you know, the bottom line is I have been privileged. I have spent 40 years being paid to work on ancient Greeks and Romans, right? I, I need to say why that's important in such a way that, you know, even if people don't agree with me, they, we can argue and we can talk about it. You know, just to assume that I've got a God-given right to work on blokes who lived 2,000 years ago, you know, I don't think I have. Um, so I, I think it came from that, really. Um, and, well, you know, it's, when you get people interested, it's fun, you know, cause, because they actually have interesting things to say back. Um, you learn, you know, the more you interest people, the more they teach you. When it speaks to enormous care for the reader and a real awareness and a presence of the reader in the work, right, which isn't always the case when we read some of these books, right? You don't feel like you're part of it as a reader because it's clear oh. that the writer has no interest in you. Oh, they're talking to themselves. Yes. Well, in which case, why bother to publish the bloody stuff? <laughs> Well, I think we probably have time just for just one more question. I want to thank you again for being here, for coming all this way. It's an honor um, to have you and to have you. It's fun to be on the cusp of this new book, which you should all go out and run out and buy. It's an amazing. I got the chance to read it early, and it's really wonderful, and we're really excited. Um, to, I'm sure you'll be excited to all read it. I certainly was, and my dog-eared copy at the back. I hope it. I hope it's offering a different view of imperial power, which is not just one posh white man after the next whose dates you can't remember. <laughs> and I hope it also, I mean, its title is Emperor of Rome, and um, in some ways that's a bit misleading um, because it makes it look as if it's only about the guys at the top. But as I tried to show this evening, you can't ever, you know, nobody rules on their own. There is no such thing as one-man rule. You know, everybody needs helpers, they need advisors, they need people to make that possible. And I was interested also in looking at those people and looking at the ordinary people with whom the emperor interacted. So it's, it's got plenty of the ordinary in as well yeah. as the, the extraordinary amount of humanity, yeah. All right, well, with that, I think we're going to say goodnight. Thank you again for coming. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for the warm welcome. That was Mary Beard from Poor Thoughts and Lectures in 2023. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Matthew Workman for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. And I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, 
And this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.